You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. anybody that that's just what happened we got to sing one of my favorites this morning um, I apologize for those of you who are in the uh, the focus hour that you get to once again listen to me try to cram too much information into too short of a time um, you know it's the problem with not being around for three years is you just have a lot to say and you got to get through it all um, <clears throat> I am happy though that uh, you know because now now I'm, I'm preaching a sermon, I get to base it into a text. So the text we're looking at today is Luke 24, 13 to 35. And I love the fact, you know, I was watching Byron preach last week. I love the fact that I can show up to preach and not have a PowerPoint with the verses, and I'm pretty sure everyone has access to uh, to the Bible, and I'm hearing a lot of pages rustling, which also makes me happy. People brought their Bibles to church. It's great. Um, <clears throat> the reason I'm, I'm apologizing, I have a lot to cram in. I was, I was trying to explain this to my, my 13-year-old son, Josiah, who understands a lot of things, but uh, that sometimes it's easier to preach sermons and to teach off of things that you have only had a week to prepare on, because it's very linear at that point. You read it, you learn it, you, you kind of have a week to put it together, and you have a fairly narrow um, source material in which to then explain and talk about with the, the people you're, you're to the congregation. But when you teach on something or preach on something that God's been working on your heart in various ways for a long time, it becomes more messy and complicated because he's been leading you in strange and funny ways, and then you have to somehow codify that in a way that... Uh, that uh, can be understood <laughs> and tracked by other people who haven't been part of this process. So um, I was really grateful that I was looking at this very familiar passage, The Road to Emmaus, and it seemed to encapsulate a lot of what God has been working on me in these last couple of years, these last couple crazy COVID years. It's been crazy COVID years, right? Like it's, we can just admit that, that this has been a remarkable time, and it's not an American thing. I love the fact that we can travel anywhere in the world and just be like, guys, COVID's been rough, like, right? It, COVID's been a rough time, and everyone's like, yes. I was in Mongolia, and, and all you had to be was like, COVID, and everyone's nodding like, yeah, COVID. It was a strange time for everybody. Lots of things happening. Um, and so today, we're looking... You know, as we're kind of coming out of this time and each country's emerging differently from it and each cultural group's emerging differently, but everyone has disappointments, issues that happen during this time that, uh, that, they're that they're working through and dealing with. And so we're coming to a similar situation here in this road to Emmaus of like the post debrief after something tumultuous happened. And this is, this ratchets it up several notches. So we're just, we're going to get into this, the road to Emmaus. And the first phrase is, that very day. And so when you see that, <clears throat> here's something that God's been working with me for a while. I want to know, we have to have in our mind, Luke wants us to have in our mind, what else 
happened because he makes it clear to say this is not something that just happened another time. This is connected to directly everything that happened before. So before we talk about these two disciples that are walking down this road together, let's, let's back up a little bit and remember what happened. What had just gone on. Just a few days before, this a group of disciples had escorted their rabbi into Jerusalem. He had been kind of going that way for a long time and uh, was, was heading toward the city with the temple, the city of promise, the city of expectation, the seat of power. See, the disciples were actually a fairly large group of people um, who were devoted to Jesus and followed him around, coming and going as they needed to go. There was an inner group of 12 that were also in Luke called the Apostles. But frequently when Luke talks about disciples, he talks about this much larger group that followed Jesus around and were privy to a lot of his teaching. And so as they escorted their leader into Jerusalem, he was riding on a colt. And crowds were welcoming him as one would, who would set things right. And the disciples actually, according to the Luke account, led the procession and roared the praise of their great teacher. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they got to walk ahead of their rabbi as he entered Jerusalem. And they watched in fascination as their master goes into the temple and drives out the money changers and assorts dominance and authority over the temple by cleansing it and they begin to teach in it daily. And they got to sit there and watch and see things that had been promised start to come true. That this, this figure had entered into Jerusalem. The people were praising him. They were listening to him in the temple. And they watched the religious leaders kind of wring their hands in the shadows because they couldn't move against their great and powerful teacher. Jesus even turned to them and taught them separately. He instructed them to beware of these scribes. He praised a widow for giving everything she had. And then their rabbi went on to one of his confusing teachings. You know, every, every rabbi would have times where he would talk about things no one really knew what, was, what it was, you know. Every great rabbi would have these esoteric sayings where the disciples would just kind of nod and be like, okay, yeah, I don't get it, but he's very smart and he says things that nobody understands, which sometimes is the mark of a smart person. Because he talked about strange things, the destruction of the temple, persecution, the fall of Jerusalem itself. You know, and it re would remind the disciples, he's done this before, where he'll say things like, I'm going to be put to death, and then three days later I will rise again. You know, strange stuff that no one takes seriously. Every great leader needs to say these strange things. The disciples, the, disciples, the gr large group, then waited during the Passover. The group of 12 went up to the upper room. The disciples waited, and when the 12 came down with, oh, it was 11 that came down with Jesus, they joined them, and they went to the Mount of Olives. And there, their rabbi, who was distressed, clearly distressed at this point, I'm sure the disciples are starting to wonder what's going on, what, what big thing's about to happen. Their rabbi begged them to pray, but it was late, and they had just eaten. And they were full of concern, and they fell asleep. And as Jesus returned to chastise them and say, pray, immediately a large crowd from the priest filled, came into view, and Judas, the disciple, the apostle, one of the twelve, was among them, the traitor. Luke stops mentioning the disciples at this point specifically, but we can 
we can read between the lines that they experienced a bewildering night as their rabbi, their master, the one who was supposed to make everything right, was led away. And that they tried to hear snippets of what was going on, what was happening. And that they would have been shocked as the crowd, which loved Jesus just a few days before, turns on him and screams, crucify, crucify. They would have been shocked at the appearance of their master who had been beaten and a crown placed upon his head and whipped. And how he was led like a criminal to the place of the skull. How he was displayed in shame on a cross and how people who had no right to say anything to him mocked him. And then scripture is clear that a group of them stood at a distance and just watched as their master just died. And the hopes, the collapse of the hopes and dreams of political victory, of personal gain, just watching, watching this death happen. The next day was the Sabbath. They couldn't travel. They simply waited. The next, some of the women went to uh, anoint Jesus' body. Many of the disciples were together together. And eventually, two of the disciples decided, we need to go to Emmaus. doesn't say why, but it was time to get out of Jerusalem. So now, let's go back to the, that very day. They were walking, and they were talking and discussing together. Have you guys ever had one of these walking, talking conversations after, after an event? Something that shook you to your core, and you're just walking. You don't care where you're walking. Um, I've had several of these conversations actually back in the States. You know, I get to connect with old friends, people I've walked with in life before, and I come back and I hear stories, uh, a lot of them terrible. And uh, I went with one friend, and we were just going on a little, like, it's like a mile-long loop around this park, and we just ended up walking it like eight times because we were just talking and debriefing this thing that happened to them. And Luke actually emphasized that he uses four separate words to describe the talk because the talk was intense and it was going on. They were talking and discussing together. And it says, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Emphasizing. And so, um, you know, I don't like it when people, when, when, uh, when pastors use Greek to, to shift meaning. I think the meaning, the clear meaning is, is clear in the English. The, the translations in English we have are great. But frequently Greek can be used to show uh, color and drama that's hard to communicate in the English. And what's happening here is there's this, there's this language of walking and talking and moving. And Jesus said, what is it, this conversation you're having with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And it's meant to be a picture. And I think we can all experience this where there's walking, talking, and suddenly something happens. And it's just a picture of two men who have had their hope ripped out from them, who don't know what's going on, who have been following this, this, this teacher who had done miracles and done nothing wrong and just watched him bleed to death and, and on a cross. And what, what would that mean? How would you feel? How would you be going on? Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, and he answered him a little sharply. There's a little voltage behind this. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? 
It's, it's more. I don't know how many times I do this to my kids, unfortunately. I'm experiencing something. They ask an innocent question. And it's just more sharp than I realize. I've got a lot going on. And it comes out sharp. And Jesus, and he said to them, I love this. There's irony in this. What things? You know, the whole time, we as the reader are going, it's Jesus. But they have no idea. He said, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, <clears throat> a man who was a prophet. And I want you to look at this, this, these next couple of verses because they encapsulate a summary of what's just happened. So they first they called Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet. And that actually is very Lucan in the way that it goes about it. That Jesus, when he started his ministry, opened the scroll, read from Isaiah, and put that prophetic ministry upon himself. And so, yes, he was a prophet, but it's incomplete. Um, you can compare this in Acts 10. Peter is talking to Cornelius, and this is how Peter, Peter kind of gives an explanation. And this is what he says. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Christ, important from the, the Greek or the Hebrew Messiah, where we get both Messiah and Christ. Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So Peter starts from a very different place than these disciples do. I mean, Peter has the benefit of hindsight now. But they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. True, but incomplete. Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And this next line is just so full of meaning. You can dwell on this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And you get the crux of why they are standing sad and disconsolate. We, we hoped he was it. We had attached our, our, our dreams to this, that he would be the one to redeem Israel, that he would make the wrong things right, that he would fix things that are going on, these injustices that are happening. And it's just so ironic that they are literally talking to Jesus while this is happening. We, we hoped it was him, but clearly it wasn't. Yes, and besides this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Now, why would they mention that it was the third day? This is one of the parts where you start to go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why would they mention the third day? Well, it's because three other times in Luke, Jesus said, hey, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Okay, Jesus. This should have been the day of hope. This should have been like, it's the third day. But instead they're saying, you know, and it's the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So look at that explanation again of what had happened, the things that had gone on where Jesus says, what things? And they, they explain it while they are stopped and slumped over and hopeless. While they are hopeless, they say, they did not find his body and came back saying they'd seen an angel and it's the third day and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but they did not see. And this is where if you are reading this in context, reading it, you should as a reader go, what? Why? How are you missing this? 
You're saying almost all the right words. The tomb is empty. People who, disciples who've been traveling with you have claimed to see angels saying that he is risen. You can't find the body. He said that he will rise three days later. Why are you saying it this way? Why are you using that tone with those words? Um, Josiah, I'm going to use you as an example. I didn't know if you'd be in today. Sorry. It's not something you said. Josiah, um, in, in Thailand, he was playing soccer, and he broke his arm blocking a shot from a much bigger, much bigger guy. Kicked a ball, you know, 10 feet away from him. He blocked it, and he bent his wrist back, we, and we had to go to the hospital. Um, so we were at the hospital, you know, and there's, there's a good hospital system. Uh, a lot of the, the, the Thai doctors have, have been trained in, in other places. And uh, so he's, the doctor comes back, and he goes, okay, we've got a couple of options. The first one is we can break his wrist back to where it's supposed to be. And Shannon at that point kind of like needs to sit down, just like, oh my goodness. He said, or we can do nothing and it will heal by itself in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Wait, either we invasively break his arm back into alignment or we do nothing and you know, it'll heal and then eventually straighten out because he's a growing boy, yeah. Why did you say those things in that tone? Like we thought, Surgery? What's, what's going on? Growth plate? Like, what's, what, you know, is he going to have a short arm the rest of his life? What's going on? And it was basically, or we can do absolutely nothing and he'll be fine. <laughs> and this, that's, I mean, that's a silly example, but it's, it's that tone where they are saying words of hope and words of encouragement. And after they had seen everything Jesus has done and heard everything that he had done and, and, un, and had him say, I am going to die. And three days later, I will rise again. And they still are standing there hopeless. And Jesus recognizes this and look at his response. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. It's two, two insults in there, really. Foolish is literally unintelligent. You, your brains aren't working right. Slow of heart. Your, your heart's not tuned into the right frequency here. You're missing both of these things. To believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? And so now Jesus is actually in this one sentence going to fix everything that was wrong in their explanation. Was it not necessary for the Christ, not prophet, Jesus was a prophet, he had that prophetic ministry, but the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, for the Christ should suffer because they also had no concept. Somehow they had missed the fact that Christ was going to suffer. And when the suffering happened, they were shocked by it. And enter into his glory, that these things are for the glory of Christ and the glory of God. It's three elements that, were, that Jesus injects back into their story and say, you were missing these three things that were important to your story. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It's just a surreal picture of Jesus walking with two depressed people who he had... You know, and they don't even get the clue that like, at first they're like, are you the only idiot that doesn't understand what's been going on in Jerusalem? And now he's explaining everything that happened from Jesus, from the prophets. And they're still like, yeah, okay, okay. They're walking together and he's going through the scriptures on how these things must happen. That, he, that Jesus was not a prophet. He was the Christ. That he had to suffer. And that all of this was for his glory. Luke 24, 28. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Uh, as a missionary, I like this, this next sentence. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. This is a classic cultural exchange. If you have any friends from the Middle East uh, that you'll, you'll be familiar with this, hospitality is absolutely essential, um, and, but it has to be resisted. There's a, there's a negotiation in everything. Uh, in Asian culture, it's who gets the, the bill at the end of dinner. It, um, and so, you know, I just, I'm in this weird transitional phase where for a long time I was always the youngest. And so other people would pay for me when we went out to dinner because the older person pays. It's just the rule of the land. But the younger person has to fight him. That's the rule. So the bill comes and, uh, you know, the older person starts reaching for him. The younger person goes, I got it, I got it, I got it. I, let, let me do this. The older person says, no, it's mine. And you have to go back and forth. And if you don't have to fight, then you're not grateful for the meal. That's what's going on. They go near the village and he acts. This, is the, this, this isn't the English interjecting into it. This is the Greek showing that Jesus made a pretense of continuing down the path. They're going to Emmaus and he's like, oh, okay, I'll see you guys later. And they're like, no, stay with us. And he's like, ah, and they, they went back and forth and they urged him strongly, come on, stay with us. Okay, okay, I'll stay with you. For it's toward evening, the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. It's just dramatic, isn't it? This doesn't read, like, there's so often we read these stories and we just read them, like, okay, and he vanished from their He vanished. And the whole thing is that they, their eyes were closed, their eyes were closed, their eyes were closed, the bread was broken, and suddenly went, <gasps> and then he disappeared. That moment of understanding, of encountering the risen Savior. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Just as context, they had spent the day walking seven miles through rugged terrain from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. They had decided we should stay in Emmaus because it's dark. And then they decided, you know what? We need to run back in the dark. Has anyone run in the dark? I think it's more possible here in this country than in his other places. But like through the path in the dark, they go back and they found the 11. So this is suddenly we go from something that took all day going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They race back to Jerusalem in the dark, seven miles. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So they're verifying the, what, what Simon has already experienced. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I love this story because it's a story of transformation. I love transformation stories where someone, you know, that's, that's what a good story is. They are changed by the journey. And you see this change from this group that's talking together, talking, talking, talking. When someone asks what's going on, they just stop, obviously dejected. And Christ appears amongst them and walks with them and teaches them. And then when they comprehend, he disappears. And there they go, oh, and they are different people from that moment. They're full of hope. They're full of movement. They're full of life. It's a transformation story. So let's pull a couple of observations from this. Now that we kind of, hopefully, this is less of the... Uh, 
it's, 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 it's maybe hopefully come alive a little bit. A couple of observations. The first is that the gospel matters. The gospel means good news. The good news that we have as Christians matters. It makes a difference. And I think here we see two main issues with their gospel because when he asks what things, what they give them is their version of the gospel at that point. Here is what happened. And that's all that the gospel is. You know, um, we get this idea that the gospel has to be this formulaic way. It's just saying what happened. What is the good news that has happened? And for each of us, that it actually changes because it becomes personal. What is the good news that has happened in your life? And the beautiful thing is in a room like this, we have hundreds of different versions of that that all point to Christ because the gospel is how God has changed your life and what he has done for us. That's what it is. And you have a different one than I do in, in sharing with, with anyone. And God leads us to interactions where your testimony with the gospel as part of it is what that person needs, not mine, not the, not the professional Christian. But the gospel matters. And these disciples had most of it. A lot of what they said was absolutely true, but they were missing a couple of important pieces. And that's what Jesus corrects in verse 26. So remember, when he says, they said that Jesus was a prophet. And he said, no, the Christ. Jesus has to be Christ. First thing that I think a lot of people miss in the gospel is that it has to center around who Jesus is. You know, it's not Jesus was a good person. Jesus was a great teacher. Just Jesus is a lover of all. Those are absolutely true things. But Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the son of God sent from heaven to save us. That's who Jesus is. And we are expecting him to return, not as some version. Uh, he's not a, a model for us all to emulate so that we can make the world a better place. We are expecting the king of the universe to return again. Amen? That's, so it centers on this idea of who Jesus is. The whole point of Luke, in fact, is that, is that fact, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. And the second thing that then Jesus corrects is to say, and he had to suffer. The suffering was part of it. And if you look back through Luke, Jesus' teaching, he could not have been more clear that suffering was part of it. Is suffering part of the gospel? Is it part of the gospel in your life and in my life? You know, the uh, Jesus loves you and has an amazing plan for your life is true. Absolutely true. But that amazing plan for Jesus involved a lot of suffering and we are told to be his disciples, to follow after him. So the gospel has suffering as part of it. So we look around and say, how is this happening? I'm suffering. What's going on? That's the gospel. That's what it is. There are parts of it to that. And the, the, the joy, and that's the, the third part, is that it is for Jesus' glory, our glory, that the purpose of all of it is for glory everlasting. So there were elements missing from their theology in the gospel. And when we say theology, a lot of our eyes glaze over, so I don't even want to use that. There were elements missing from the good news that they were supposed to tell the people, that when someone said, what things? The story that they told was mostly correct, but not all the way correct. And because of that, it, hadn't, it, it wasn't changing their lives. It wasn't impacting who they were. But what I find it interesting, though, is that even as Jesus walks with them and talks with them, and you know, I, my, uh, those of you that came Wednesday, 
a lot of my focus right now is trying to evaluate teaching. So if I can look at scripture and think of anyone as a master teacher, it would be the, the, uh, the uh, risen savior. You know, this would be the most excellent teacher that can be imagined. But even as he was teaching, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We don't get that sense of transformation yet. We don't get that sense of change. Later, they reflect that their hearts were burning. Something was happening. But the teaching didn't affect the change in their demeanor and what they did. And I have to remember that as a teacher sometimes. Like we're supposed to teach. That's something we're supposed to do. People need to learn. But teaching doesn't change hearts. I want it to. And that's something that I have to keep I, I, is, is part of my evaluation is that we want to say, if I teach God's word, your heart will be changed. But that's not actually the completeness of it. The Holy Spirit is involved in this. I can present truth, but the Holy Spirit is the one that brings it to our hearts. And in this circumstance, when did their hearts change? When did they take action? When did they go, oh, that's it? It's when they saw the risen Savior. When he broke the bread and their eyes were open and they went... And he disappeared, but that's all that was necessary. They had that connection to Christ. And that's part of the gospel too, isn't it? It's not an intellectual exercise. Here is the good news. Da, 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 and that's it. Hope it's good. It is how it has connected to my life and how my life is different as a result of a connection to Christ and who he is. So the gospel matters. The way that we present it in our hearts, the way that we present it in our lives, the gospel makes a difference. And one of those differences is, I guess, where I want to uh, kind of finish, well, finish this, this, this part and then maybe share a little bit. Because of the gospel, because we have this good news, because we can look at this incomplete version and go, that's not quite right, because we know that the risen Savior is here and, is able to, and we are able to have a relationship with him now, because of that, we, as the keepers of the gospel, must be people of hope. Amen. When they said they had no hope, it was because their explanation of what was going on was incomplete, and they needed it, they needed it to be modified. But we have all these things. And if you have a full version of the gospel, knowing what Jesus has done and God has been, and you have met and encountered the risen Savior, then we must be people of hope. And scripture is pretty clear on this. Let's just let me read a couple verses. 2 Corinthians 1.10. He delivered us from deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We ought to be a people who hopes and who have our hopes set in something. And this is where I'd like to pivot then uh, to my story. Because frankly, um, last couple of years, parts of these last couple of years have not been a hopeful time for me as a missionary. You know, I, I've, uh, I've shown the slide a couple of times where 
We had a vision in 2019 of the things that I would be doing, and we got to Thailand, and within six months, everything was kind of shut down, and I couldn't do any of those things. Which you think, okay, that's, that's, that's fine, but I hadn't realized where my hope was and where it was, was anchored. And I'm not saying my hope wasn't Christ, but I had hope in a lot of other, other pieces. And I didn't realize how much weight I was putting on those threads of hope until those things were, until I basically pulled those down and realized, well, what am I hanging on to? I can't travel anymore. I can't do the ministry that our supporters think that I'm doing. And I am not really fit to do Thai ministry. Uh, Thai ministry is really difficult. Uh, you have to know language really well. You have to be in, in, in uh, relationship really well because Thailand is one of the hardest places to share the gospel. So I felt inadequate. I felt that, uh, and then there were things that I should have been doing. I, it was a great time to make a lot of progress on my dissertation. And I couldn't do it. I, I failed repeatedly because I don't actually like it. And I would normally, I would do the things that I'm good at and it would kind of get me excited. And then I'd go over and like work on the paper and just be like, mm, and then go and get excited again and go back and forth. But when this is taken away, I just, I couldn't go forward. But the shame started piling up on me of like, I can't do anything. I can't do the stuff that I'm supposed to do. I can't do the stuff that, uh, that I, I want to do. You know, what, what am I? And when your hope is cut away, that's, that's where you start to, uh, the enemy can, can start speaking to you at that point and saying like, you know, were you, did anything that you do really matter at that point? Are you, are you where you're supposed to be? You know, going to sleep at night. Nathan, what did you do today for the kingdom? Did you do anything for the kingdom? Are you useful to God at all? And so I guess I, I share this because I'm confident that this is a shared human experience. You know, that we put our hope in things that are not Christ. And we hold on to that saying, this is, this is solid, this is good. And when those things are knocked away, suddenly we're, we're reeling and we're saying, well, then what is true and what, is, what matters? And what happens is that the gospel that we proclaim with our mouth does not match how, our, our affect and our mood. We are doing what those disciples did of saying, and the tomb is empty, and it's the third day, and angels appeared to our friends, and, and we are people without hope. And it's been an interesting journey. There was um, you know, six months to a year where I, I just struggled. You know, and God, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't so far in the depths that you know, it was like depression or, but it was a time of just, you know, there was some valley of the shadow of death going on there. Um, and what I can say now, which is, which is amazing, is that God led me out of that. There was times where I had to kind of, there was some recalibration that happened. I had to let go of some things and say, am I useful to God or does God care for me even if I'm not doing the things that I feel like I'm supposed to be doing? Um, even if I'm not teaching and if I'm not getting that rush of being able to communicate with people and realizing that I would put a lot of hope in that sense of teaching and seeing eyes light up and going like, yes, I'm making a difference. That's where a lot of my hope was. Which is a good thing, but it's not where my hope should be. 
And so if you were there for the, the focus hour, that's where this, this opportunity for uh, a webinar came up, and I thought it was silly. And God used a, uh, what I consider to be bad missiology and, a, and an opportunity that I wasn't even wasn't blipping on my radar as important or useful. God used that in spite of me. He used it um, despite it being a, me speaking through translators through a computer into a place that I'd never been. It's a terrible, it's a terrible strategy. God kind of likes using terrible strategies, though. You know, It really shows, like, hey, I don't need you. I, I, I can use you if I want. And so Mongolia suddenly became this focus. And through that, we got to uh, understand that maybe we can actually begin to mobilize people from a country that we can't visit anymore. Maybe we can help them from a distance. Maybe we can find people in Mongolia that can serve as disciplers and that maybe we can start to get these, these amazing missionaries to start going through some training and being connected to their churches and being connected to people on the field. And maybe we can do that from a distance. And, but I think the difference is that the hope at that point was not me because I had no idea what I was doing. There was no skill set that I could say, yeah, I've got this. This is going to be good. I'm going to get all the endorphin rush that I love from teaching. It's just going to be God. Is this okay? Okay. That worked. Okay, God, how about this? And it was that sense of God, watching God do something in an area and saying, I can, I can do this even when you are outside of your comfort zone. Even when you haven't read the right books or have the right training, I can still do it. And so one of the, the cherry on top of this is that we got to, uh, ministry was being done, and right before we came to the U.S. for this home assignment, I got to go to Mongolia. First trip in two and a half years. And that means that that is the longest I have ever been in one country for any length of time, two and a half years. Because I would just, I grew, up, I grew up traveling around my whole life. And suddenly I'm on an airplane and everything's different because COVID still has, has especially at that time, had funny, funny uh, things happening. I felt really unsure. The enemy was whispering in my ear going, Nathan, are you still, why are you going here? Do, do you, are you still any good at this? Do you like traveling? I know I was, I was fearful. I was afraid. I was like, God, what if I hate this now? What if I get on this plane and I get to Mongolia and it's just awful and I have to endure it for three weeks of ridiculous things? But that's frequently what the enemy whispers in our ear. And the whole time in Mongolia, it was like God led me from experience to experience where he led me somewhere and said, Nathan, remember this? You love this. I love that you love this. I'm going to use this again. And there was just moments and times where it was just so busy. We did six training events um, over the course of two weeks in Mongolia. It's back to back to back to back and working with and, and, you know, I had stomach problems the entire time. There are parts of it were just really physically hard. But in all of it, God was giving me these moments where he was saying, remember this? You love this. Remember this? Remember this? And the, so it was at the end. We now have a team in Mongolia. And it was at the end, the day that I was leaving, I was going to get on the airplane that afternoon. Um, and the team came to me and they gave me a little package and they, uh, and they said, Nathan, um, we'd like to change your name. It's not it's, uh, something you hear very often. You know, hey, you know, your name's not really suiting you. Let's, let's change that. They'd given me the name Naidan when I started working with Mongolians. And Naidan is a family name for I think someone that won a medal in the Olympics for uh, jiu-jitsu. And so it's kind of a famous name in Mongolia, and it sounds close to Nathan, so it's kind of like, you know, I'd introduce, I don't speak any Mongolian, but they'd be like, Naidan, and they'd be like, yeah, yeah Naidan, you know. And, 
Mongolia is kind of a rough and tumble place, so being linked to a martial artist was a good thing. <laughs> and so I was like, I kind of like my name. It sounds like my name. It's got good connotations. And they said, yeah, but we would like to change your name to Naidur. I was like, okay, that sounds like less like Nathan. Seems like a step backward. I said, what, is, what does Naidur mean? And they said, well, Naidan doesn't mean anything, but Naidur means hope. And it was, um, they had no idea. I hadn't, I hadn't been sharing with them in that way. Said, Why hope? And they said, because when you teach, we feel, we feel hope that, that uh, Mongolia is going to do something for God in the world. And so they, the package they handed me was a shirt. And I would have worn it, but it's a T-shirt. I didn't feel like I could quite push that boundary <laughs> here. But it's got old Mongolian script, and it just, that says, Naidur. Uh, they had it made. It wasn't like a off-the-shelf anything. It's my favorite shirt now. It, it was, uh, I really felt like it's, it's almost like an Abraham moment, you know? When God, <laughs> Abram means great father, and God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude, when he still only had one illegitimate child. <laughs> And it's, it was just such a, a humbling moment because I don't feel like I always embody this idea of being a person of hope. I get really caught up in the mechanics of how to do this and how to do this and, and how to work this through and, and just this realization that only a couple of the things that I hope in have to be cut before I kind of collapse into a puddle. But looking at this and realizing, man, how many people could look at my life and the way that I act and then hear the gospel that I present. I have a savior that died for my sins, that took them away and put them far away and, and nailed to the cross the, the terrible things that, that I have done and now is preparing a place for me and waiting for me in heaven and invites me to participate in the work that he's doing on earth. That's my message. If that is the things that I say, then how should I be acting? How should I be? And that's not to say we should also be smiling and, and, and happy. It's not saying happy, but hopeful is different. What does it mean to be hopeful? I think it means that, one, is that our lives matter. That because we have this hope in Christ and we are connected to Christ, then he has something for each of us. It's not just a, well, I'm just floating around waiting, but Christ has created you. He has a plan for you and a purpose for you. Our life matters because of hope. There is a destiny and a future. I think hope means that we are not reactionary as Christians. Christians should be the least reactionary people on the planet because our hope is tied into something that cannot change and the gospel doesn't change. We know how everything ends. We know how it all goes down in the end. We know that there will be hard times, even as we pursue righteousness and justice and peace. But Jesus will return in power and glory, and every knee will bow. That's what we know. That's where our hope is. That's not going to change. But, we, you know, we get angry about stuff sometimes. We get upset about that things, that things get hard when we know that that's what's going to happen. We get bitter we're not okay because of some kind of setback that goes on in the world. This should not be. We should not be reactionary people that get angry and bitter and participate that way in, in, in public discourse. We should be people of hope. Silly example. Um, I moved to Ohio to go to Malone 
from Taiwan, which was quite a culture shock. Uh, one of the culture shock pieces was uh, college football. No way to follow college football in Taiwan at the time. I mean, I think dial-up was still was happening. I, I didn't know what college football was at all. And so I was clueless as I entered into these intensely heated debates about college football and how much people cared about things. So clearly, in this area, it was an OSU crowd. And so I was invited to go to the OSU Michigan, a viewing of the OSU Michigan, of an OSU Michigan game. It was a, like a, an event that was being hosted at a church I was going to. And I kind of didn't want to go because I'd, I'd made mistakes before. Because I just want to see a good football game, you know. I don't have allegiances, but people were not happy with me for just being there cheering for an underdog. They're like, if you're sitting with us, you're cheering OSU. Okay, sorry. Um, so I, it was this invitation, and I was like, ah, I don't know. And then I saw free lunch provided. <laughs> College student, I was like, all right, I'll go. And it was a great game that was ultimately heartbreaking for OSU fans in 2003. Um, and people left there bitter and angry and frustrated. And I left happy because I got a free lunch. <laughs> My hope was not in the outcome of that football game. My hope was in the lunch. And because of that, I left going, man, those nachos were incredible. What a great time. And because I was so happy, people did also did not like that about it as well. But when your hope is in something that is certain, and nachos were far from certain, but more certain the outcome of the game, then we're not reactionary, right? We don't have to be swayed around. We are, our hope is solid. So I guess I, I hope I can, I can bring this, this back around to this idea. The gospel matters. The gospel matters in how we put it together. Your theology of the gospel matters. But all of that theology can be perfect, instructed by Jesus himself even, and without an encounter with the risen Savior, I'm not sure it has that transforming power that, that, that we have. Without the Holy Spirit, without an encounter with God, it's, 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 it's good news, but it's not good news that applies to you. And then because of that, we are people of hope. We are people that when things are going crazy, we're not reacting. Not to that way. We're reacting to in com with compassion. We're reacting with love. We're reacting to the people around us. We can see what's clearly going on, and we can be compassionate people as the world goes crazy. That's what it means to be a person of hope. So we have a message of hope. So I guess my, my three questions to end this, this morning is, is your gospel complete? Are you... Do you see Jesus in the way that he's meant to be seen? If not, there are lots of people here this morning who would love to have a conversation with you about what seeing Jesus in a complete way means. Have you encountered the risen Savior? Do you have an encounter with God? And I'm not saying like it has to be you know, some sort of, of miraculous change, but that you have, you have an experience, you have experienced Christ's love in your life in a way that makes you run seven miles back and tell people that Jesus is alive. And the fast, last one, are you that person of hope? And if you don't feel like you are that person of hope, I'm speaking to myself here, then going back through and saying, is my gospel complete? Am I looking at the right things? Am I backwards engineering that to saying, why, why isn't there hope right now? Because if you understand this good news the way that we're supposed to, we become people that are hopeful in this world. Let me pray for us. 
Father, I, I thank you that we have good news. That your, what you accomplished on the cross, taking our place, removing the shame, becoming weak when you are so strong, that that gives us something to share, something that is exciting. That we are not like the Old Testament prophets that are, are doom and gloom and turn, but that we are people who bring a message of hope. And so, Father, I just I pray that you will, you will help us see where we have attached ourselves, where we are placing hope in things that will lead to disappointment. And, Father, as much as we can, as much as you will lead us and guide us in that process, may we, may we untether those lines and, and, figure, and guide us in how to put them into you to where our, our greatest joy, our greatest passion, our greatest expectation revolves around you and what you are doing and what you will do. And so, Father, I, I thank you for a church like Alpine that encourages one another in this hope, that where the gospel matters. And I pray, God, that you will just increase that capacity, whether it's Alpine, whether it's our brothers and sisters in Navarre, or our brothers and sisters in Mongolia around the world, that, Father, the church will be synonymous with the people who have a good message to share. And because of that message, their lives have been transformed and they are people of hope. We thank you for your